Welcome to the Unfiltered Podcast with me, Joe Warner, and powered by Ultimate Performance, the world's premier personal training experience that delivers maximum results in minimum time. In each episode of the Unfiltered Podcast, I interview the most respected, celebrated, and controversial experts in the fields of health, fitness, nutrition, well-being, and performance to help you find the life-changing advice you need to live smarter. Remember, you can find all of our exclusive Unfiltered documentaries, video interviews, and investigations at unfilteronline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. And now, on with the show. Professor Mai, you've been at the forefront of, of research into the intricate relationship between the gut and the brain for, for many, many years. I was hoping you could give an explanation to somebody who maybe hasn't given much time or consideration to their gut health or the relationship between the gut and the brain, why it is so important for overall health. The term gut health, it's an, it's an interesting um it's an interesting term because, you know, I'm a gastroenterologist. I've been trained in uh, diagnosing and treating gut diseases, not deal with gut health. I mean, obviously gut health was something I would bet that in my career, that word never came up, you know, until about a couple of years ago. And now it's, uh, you know, people embrace it to address a variety of different aspects of um, so I think now a lot of people do associate gut health with overall health and well-being and, uh, and you know, feeling good, um, linking that to nutrition, but also linking gut health to um, absence of anxiety, absence of depression. So, you know, to be honest, I've not been concerned in my career and you know, treating thousands of patients um, with gut health for a long time. That has changed, I would say, about five years ago, so a couple of years into um, the publication of my book about the mind-gut connection, where a lot of feedback came from from readers and from podcast hosts and questions about gut health. So, I mean, what is it? You know, you it's... Um, it's not a term that you would find in a medical textbook or in a scientific textbook. It's something that's evolving, and I, I think it's um, I think it's a good term, particularly because it links what goes on in your gut with your brain and your overall functioning and well-being. So it's like a, a holistic term of wellness that has aspects of um, you know that you, of, of of actionable items. Um, healthy diet, uh, mindfulness, all this feeds into this brain-gut connection and overall gut health. Why do you think then in the last five years it's become such a hot topic? Because from your experience previously, the gut, I think, would be something that people only took notice of when something went wrong, when they had some kind of, of gut issue. For everyone else, you were kind of just getting on with your life without thinking about it. Where's this shift come from where now gut health and the relationship between the gut and the brain seems to be so central to, to many people's thinking and around their diet, their nutrition, their sleep recovery, every facet of their life? It's a very interesting question. I mean, obviously, there, there's one entity of gastrointestinal disorders. is used to be called functional disorders. Now they're called disorders of brain-gut, of gut-brain interactions. Like irritable bowel syndrome is a typical example, more common in, 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 in women. Um, but 
that's a disease or a disorder that um, patients wouldn't really want to talk about in public. It's kind of embarrassing to talk about your bowel habits and if you have diarrhea or constipation or bloating or gas. I mean, these are all things you don't want to. Um, so it's there was a lot of shame associated with that term or with these kind of symptoms. And and it went beyond just the irritable bowel syndrome, which is a relatively narrowly defined aspect of this. But we know that when we ask, when we put gave questionnaires to patients with IBS, they have a range of other symptoms. You know, the, the range is from almost 90% with anxiety, uh, um, but also other types of discomfort and pain in their body, brain fog. So all these things that are, come, are coming up now in terms of in terms of gut health, they, they were always there. And, and one interpretation is because this this topic has become now um, acceptable, the, the shame is gone, everybody now can talk about it. And you can, uh, so if, you know, at a dinner party or with your friends, you can say, yeah, I have a gut health issue and I'm doing this for my gut health. So I think it's... Uh, a change in the awareness um, and in the tolerance of society to listen to people that that have these symptoms, which they which they probably have always had, and um, but you had to sort of sweep it under the carpet because it, it's not something most physicians didn't didn't believe it when people said, you know, there's something wrong, I, I don't feel well. They they would say, well. We've done endoscopy. We didn't see anything. Your gut is fine. But for the patient, the gut health was not fine. You know, they had all kinds of symptoms. So do you think it's a case of not only it's more acceptable, socially acceptable to talk about some of these issues around digestion, do you also think there's an element that these conditions are becoming more widespread? I'm thinking more of modern lifestyle, a lot more stress, uh, dietary choices, sedentary lifestyle. Do you think actually there is a case or there is an argument to be made that more people are being affected by these issues because of the way we're living in the Western world. Um, that's that's certainly the case for certain brain gut disorders, or what this brain gut microbiome interaction plays a role. Um, yeah, because in the last seventy five years, the changes in our lifestyles has been dramatic, and I would identify maybe you know three three aspects. Um, that have increased over 75 years, but even have been accelerated over the last few years, I mean, since the pandemic. So one is um, one is the diet, clearly the Western diet, um, standard American diet. Uh, you know, it's well known in the meantime what the problems are, um, ultra-processed foods, uh, lack of fiber, um, too much sugar, being being the main f factors, so that's definitely something that has has not gotten better for the majority of people. The other thing is the anxiety that people are experiencing around, you know, all these major crises that we have been going through or are anticipating, or just around the corner from from the pandemic. Um, constant worry you might get infected and. Um, to um, you know, climate change being maybe one of the most threatening at at the moment. But this, in the U.S., for example, with the elections, you know, that's 
collapse of agreement in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a democracy. There's a lot to be worried about, isn't there, globally? There's, there's a lot to be worried about. And um, even if you are not, um, you know, an avid newsreader, I, I think in the background, this is always there, particularly for young people. There's, there's this, this increasing amount of stuff that's worrisome about the future in which they, I mean, we can deal with this as, you know, at our age, but I think for young people, they have it all ahead of them. And um, so anxiety has increased significantly uh, during the pandemic. And um, I mean, the way we're going, I, I think that I don't see any, any signs or any positive signs that this will actually slow down or, 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 or go away. You know, and, uh, there's also the worry, um, that, you know, so we have, we had this pandemic. It's, it's not gonna, it, it wasn't a one time thing. I mean, like most scientists will say, we will see more of these and they can, could even be more severe. And, you know, it's, it's uh, so it, it's, um, so both the anxiety has been increasing and the, the dietary stress. I call both of these different types of stresses. And I always emphasize our, our bodies, our brains, our evolution has equipped us well to deal with acute stressors. Like, you know, crossing the road and almost being hit by a car or, um, or you know, the, the wild animals chasing after you. But that system that's so perfect and has assured the survival of the human species does not work well or at all for chronic stresses as we are experiencing now. So I think humans probably really have had a time where that chronic stress level gradually keeps increasing and we're trying to mobilize our acute stress systems. They fail, they actually become counterproductive and um, there's a couple of other things like lack of exercise is, is another thing that we know. Uh, our sedentary lifestyles, you know, most adults spend 95% of their their life sitting and not not walking around or running. Or um, so there's there's all these things that have an influence. Um, sleep is another one. Disturbed sleep, poor sleep. They all converge on that system of, I would say, homeostasis, you know, between our brain and our gut. And now we can also include the microbes in that homeostatic system. But it's it's influenced by all these various inputs from that in from a, from a changing world around us. I want to ask you about um, some practical measures people can take to improve the health of, of their gut. But before we get to that, Professor Mars, I was hoping you could, for someone who's never ever thought about their gut and how it interacts with every other system in their body, just how important is your gut health? I know that might sound like a very simplistic question, but just can you give us a sense of exactly where, you know, how big a rock is this in somebody's personal welfare? Um. I think for most people, it was not in their awareness, in their conscious awareness, that the gut is important beyond digestion and absorption and um, getting rid of the waste. You know, that was sort of, even today, if you would do a survey, you would get this as the answer for most people. Um, and associated with that, with that opinion, 
would be an image of the gut as a as a long tube that con can contract and secrete and move things down, you know, and uh, and that's obviously completely reductionistic and no longer appropriate to what we understand now. I'm not sure if <clears throat> how many people are actually now aware, <clears throat> even though they talk about gut health, that are aware how complicated that system really is and that, for example, you know, 70% of our immune system are based in the gut. Um, a large part of our hormonal or endocrine system is based in the gut. A large part of our nervous system, 150 million neurons, are located in the gut, and they all talk to each other. <clears throat> so this idea of having a, a, a mechanical device tube inside of us is is totally obsolete and and not no, no longer appropriate. So the the gut health <clears throat> gut health really refers now in scientific terms that all these systems are in balance and interact properly with each other and are not perturbed, for example, by these chronic stresses. I've seen the gut and the digestive system described as almost the second brain. It's that influential. Is that something that you would go along with, or is, is that just not a, a nice soundbite that, that people are using? Um, it's a soundbite in some ways. I mean, there's, there's definitely a lot of science behind it that we have, as I said, 150 million nerve cells, same size as the spinal cord, <clears throat> sandwiched between the layers, the muscle layers of our gut. So imagine you have a you have a brain that's flattened out, like you you take your big brain, you flatten it out, you wrap it around the gut, and then you put another layer on it. That's kind of so it's a pretty amazing system. The main function of that system in I mean virtually every animal has that system. It's not just humans. And the the main function is to regulate all gut functions from contractions, secretions, peristalsis, blood flow. Um, and that system can work in in isolation. You can take the gut of a mouse and take it out and put it in a in a you know an organ bath, and it will still do the same things. We'll still do the peristalsis and the, so it doesn't really need the help of the brain. But the way in the intact organism it works, the the brain knows the our big brain knows everything that goes on in this in this little brain in 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 our gut, and it it lets it function as long as nothing bad happens. If there's any serious, um, you know, stress happening like a gastrointestinal infection, a bad um, you know bad bacteria. An injury, then then the big brain comes in and uh, helps out, and you know with its own emergency measures. So uh, yeah, second brain, it's from an evolutionary term, the gut brain was actually first, like hundreds of thousands of years ago, and then gradually, you know, the our big brain developed based on many of the neurotransmitters that the, the gut brain has. Um, so in evolutionary terms, the gut brain was the first brain and then a, a big brain came. Now when we look at it, it's the second brain, second in relevance and importance and uh, in the hierarchy of 
you know, um, homeostatic regulation. How much do we know about the gut and how it works? As someone who's been at the, the forefront and a pioneer in this, this research, how much has our knowledge base expanded over the, the past few decades is my first question. Like, where are we in the grand sense of how well we understand the system? And then as a follow-up, Professor, what are you most excited by in terms of the medical and the, the research breakthroughs that are coming, coming down the track? Yes, I mean that's a that's a whole talk in it uh, in itself. So when I was um, in my early part of my career, there were some pioneers studying the, the the gut brain, the enteric nervous system, the second brain, and did a phenomenal job. You know, from zero knowledge all the way today that you can computer simulate. We know all the circuits, all the transmitters. In terms of our gut brain, we pretty much know almost all its functions and and we know what kind of nerve cells regulate what and we also know how it interacts with the immune system and the hormonal system so we, we know a lot um, in terms of practical applications that has as it often does it's it's somewhat lagged behind because the symptoms of gut health like irritable bowel syndrome are more in this interaction with the brain rather than just the gut health. You know, there's a few disorders like um, this rare diseases, genetic or acquired of degeneration of this gut brain. And then people develop very serious complications that the gut no longer contracts. And, uh, you know, sometimes people can, can no longer eat regularly and, uh, but it's not it's 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 not sort of revolutionized medicine in, in in some ways. I think the the modern concept of of gut health and this this brain gut microbiome interaction that has we're, we're still early in studying this. Um, some spectacular results um, about ten years ago in in mice in laboratory mice and in in, in some animals. The translation of these findings into humans that, for example, many of the chronic um, mental disorders would could be explained by this dysregulation, we haven't really reached the final answer from in humans. And we don't have actionable strategy, for example, to treat Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease or autism spectrum. I, I think we're... we're Moving closer to that point where the, there will be dramatic opportunities, but we'll be maybe 10 years away from that, you know. But, but to, sorry to jump in, but you feel like we are on the right track. We are, this is, this is, you know, when you mentioned Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, we know there is a link there. We're confident that if we can continue on the path, we are going to find some answers. It's not as though we're barking up the wrong tree, for instance. No, no, I, I think it's, it's not going to be the only thing, you know, um, there's sort of a new understanding of the body and biology, which is systems biology that to understand health and disease, you have to look at the whole system, almost like, you know, a scientific version of the old fashioned, um, you know, holistic theories of the everything, everything. So now we have actually pretty good evidence. This brain gut microbiome system, in my opinion, will certainly continue to have a prominent role in explaining um, these, these really intractable chronic diseases that, that we're dealing with. 
if there's other components that will come up from other parts of science, um, from genetics, you know, from immunology, that sort of um, make that whole understanding even more complex. And that's quite likely. I mean, science is moving in such fast pace. Um, immunology, for example, you know, what we know today in 10 years will be probably partly obsolete. Um, neuroscience, the same wave, you know, uh, and microbiome science as well. So we're in, we're in an exponential growth phase of all the sciences that deal with the spring gut microbiome system and ultimately gut health. And I, I think we, we will refine the picture and we will ultimately, I, I convinced in the next 10 years, we'll have breakthroughs in these, in some of these disorders, particularly Parkinson's, autism spectrum, and, um, and Alzheimer's that will involve in some way or another the, the gut health concept. You've mentioned, you know, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's there and, and autism spectrum disorder. Are there any other kind of diseases or conditions where you've been surprised by the unexpected impact that the microbiome has had? Yeah, from animals, we know it from, you know, depression. So the very good models of, of depression that you can actually transfer a depressive phenotype from a, a human depressed patient into a mouse, into a rat. And then this, this animal ex, um, exhibits depression-like behaviors. Same with anxiety. Same with um, um, decreased social interactions. Uh, autism spectrum type model. Um, so a whole range, you know, all the way to schizophrenia. So there was initially when these mouse studies came out, people got, I, in my opinion, overly enthusiastic that they, all the all our diseases are brain gut microbiome disorders. I don't believe that. I think that a few of them will come out as really the main ones. And um, um, and the other ones, the microbiome might play a sort of a smaller role. But it's, I mean, one thing we should emphasize, it's just very difficult to study this in humans. In the, in the mouse models, you're 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 studying genetically identical animals that are raised in identical conditions, fed identical food, so you can control everything. You can get findings in <clears throat> as few as 10, 20 mice that are statistically significant. In humans, none of these conditions is is uh, actually applies. You know, we're all genetically different. Uh, microbiome. Only we have similarities with our neighbor. Ten percent we share only about ten percent of the microbial strains with, you know, with our um, neighbors and friends and family members. So it's it's much more challenging to prove this in humans. And I I would think that the main challenge in this field is the animal studies keep coming out and they're fantastic. You know for. Uh, but I think the main challenge is to really show in which subset of patients does this make a difference, or is are there are there genetic or microbial subsets of patients where this is really the main cause, and then target treatments at these subsets. You know, so if everybody has a slightly different combination of how these systems interact, a generalized therapy probably won't do the job. 
um, with the exception of, I would say, these these lifestyle measures, because the lifestyle measures affect the whole system, not not an individual target, you know. You mentioned there uh, in terms of the, the microbiome's impact on, on mental health. What about physical health? What do we know about the link between someone's um, gut microbiome and uh, prevalence of obesity, for instance? Do we have any understanding or information on how an individual's gut could make them more likely to gain weight or, on the flip side, more likely to stay, to stay lean? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's lots of studies in terms of metabolism and the important role of, of, of certain, you know, because we're dealing with this epidemic of, of obesity and metabolic syndrome. And, um, clearly it's been identified that the, the, the gut microbiome, the composition and the function is different. If you compare a population that's obese or has type two diabetes, um, as opposed to one that's, that's fit and lean, um, these, these epidemiological differences, group comparisons, there's absolutely no, no question that it's, it's, it's altered. And yeah, I mean, it, it, it goes beyond that because you can, we now know that, for example, certain microbes play a major role in our satiety mechanisms. They signal some of the molecules that they produce, they signal to, cells in our gut that have, they contain these satiety hormones, you know, like GLP-1 that's now becoming quite popular in terms of a, a medication for, for obesity. So the microbes have ways to regulate the release, the, the, the release of that hormone. Um, and so certainly there is a very important part of it and the way we, we, we nurture certain an unhealthy microbiome um, that is more inflammatory or less anti-inflammatory plays a big role. So inflammation or gut-based immune activation always plays a big role in 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 most diseases really where where we think it's it's involved. So both the mental disorders but also in in obesity, metabolic syndrome um, I mean, virtually, <clears throat> you know, it goes all the way to colon cancer, um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Take any of the chronic illnesses that we're dealing with today in our society. This chronic inflammation always plays a role um, as an important factor. And the microbes play a major role in regulating the immune activation in our gut. So, in some ways, if you ask me what's the best, the, the most convincing argument to to emphasize the importance of the microbiome is its its interaction with the gut-based immune system, which then generalizes throughout the body and affects all our diseases. Um, and and you know the the, the interactions is bidirectional. So, um, for example. Physical exercise, you know, moderate, regular physical exercise has been shown to have a beneficial effect on microbial function and composition. Um, extreme exercise, like extreme um, athletes, like triathlon and ultramarathons, has the opposite effect on gut health and the microbes. So it's like this, mic this mic a microbial system 
is is amenable to these um, you know these body functions like exercise but can also influence for example endurance if you have certain spin joints if you have certain microbes they can convert lactic acid that becomes available with physical exercise into um, short chain fatty acids which are anti-inflammatory if you have this group of microbes then obviously you have an ad a physical advantage of, of of your microbiome and there's studies going on now um, with uh, what's called second generation um, probiotics that that will give you these if you don't have them you know um, naturally to can give you some of these microbes that help you break down lactic acid into into fuel and anti-inflammatory substances. With the microbiome then, obviously a huge impact on your mental health, but also your physical health, both negatively in terms of uh, likelihood of, of obesity and the impact it might have on your metabolism, but also a hugely positive potential in terms of, as you said, the endurance capabilities and other things. How can someone then begin to take the steps to, you know, optimize is a phrase that gets used a lot in, in health and fitness at the moment, but how can someone begin to make some positive changes to their microbiome? I'm thinking, you know, the TV ads about the probiotics or the prebiotics in your yogurt or your milk. I mean, how effective are they? How much do we have control over the health of our microbiome? And can lifestyle interventions or supplementary interventions really make a significant difference? Or are we stuck with the microbiome that we've got? So my personal view and, you know, being a scientist, um, my views change with evidence. So if I see evidence, I change my views. I, I, I won't stick to it. You know, I don't have a financial investment in sticking with a certain um, hypothesis. Um, I think we can do a lot. Of, people can do a lot about it. I mean, lifestyle changes are very effective if, if maintained on a regular basis, not for a month or not doing a detox or a cleansing for a week. <clears throat> I mean, those things are useless, really, in, in terms of your overall health. But by, by life, by <clears throat> persistent lifestyle changes, I think we can, you know, we can do a lot. Um, and these lifestyle changes, I mean, they're, they're, they're simple. You know, I mean, like it's, it's not, <clears throat> it's not rocket science. But now we're. <laughs> Standard, the standard things that a lot of experts would say when someone wants to improve their health. Is it regular exercise? Is it a balanced diet, minimizing sugar intake and alcohol? Is it prioritizing sleep? Is it managing stress? Am I on the right track? Is it the same kind of big picture things that, 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 that we would expect it to be? There's no kind of sexy answer. It's the basics. That's, that's yeah, unfortunately, that's the case. Unfortunately for a scientist to say, well, <clears throat> you know, we're going to have these novel compounds and they're going to, change your life overnight then <clears throat> um, I mean even with these new medications for obesity you know this GLP-1 uh, agonists um, we don't know what the long-term effect is to interfere with that elaborate brain gut microbiome system I, I wouldn't be surprised if they work for a while and then definitely if you stop giving yourself these injections you develop this yo-yo effect that then you regain the weight even beyond your original weight. So, um, so we don't have um, something that that we could say is um, you you take a medication or, or or do something and that will take care of the problem. 
you have to do it the hard way. Um, and quite a few people, you know, particularly amongst younger people, um, make these choices about healthier lifestyles. Um, diet, in some ways, I would say would be um, what we know the most because we know, you know, what our microbes thrive on, which is, so we always known that um, fruits and vegetables are the healthiest diet, but there's still these, these um you know, these culture wars between the keto people and the, uh, you know, this, it's, it's very obvious. I mean, from all the science that's accumulating that this plant, largely plant-based diet is optimal for our microbes because it provides them with the fuel that they need and provides them with uh, compounds that they turn into anti-inflammatory substances. So if, if, if you want to increase the anti-inflammatory potential of your capacity of your body, it's the plant-based food, it's the fiber, and it's another group of these large molecules, the polyphenols that's, uh, you know, in, in many fruits and vegetables. So, so along, alongside the high fiber food, the, the fruits and the veg you've mentioned, what are the other things that people should be prioritizing in their diet? And then what are the things that we should be minimizing if we want to improve the health of our gut microbiome? Yeah, so minimizing or eliminating is definitely sugar um, and not just the sugar that you add to it, um, but also the hidden sugar like the you know high fructose corn syrup that's virtually in every processed food that you buy from ketchup to any sauce, any salad dressing is, is packed with these. It, it may not taste sweet, but it is converted into sugar. Um, so that's, that's one thing, eliminate sugar. Eliminate or minimize ultra-processed food. You, you can't, you, you know, like you can't eliminate processed foods because almost everything that we eat nowadays is processed from you know, yogurt is a processed food. Um, in some ways, cooking is processing a food. So it, it's the ultra processed. You know, you add so many chemical ingredients that what, what I've seen recently in a, on, a, on a little bag of pretzels that are handed out on the airplane <laughs> is these tiny pretzels, you know, on the bag, there was a list of ingredients that are in that, in, in, in these pretzels. There must have been 50 different ingredients, chemicals that have never even heard before. So that's ultra, that's a, the classic example of ultra processed foods. So eliminate or try to eliminate those will get you a long way. If it gets, if, if it gets to, if it gets to meat, um, definitely you should increase the amount of, uh, or have a regular intake of, of seafood, um, particularly certain types. If you also want to think environmentally in sustainability, shellfish and small fish like sardines and mackerel are the ones that give you the biggest health benefit um, for your, you know, brain health and and also have the lowest impact on on, on environmental health. Um, in terms of, if you go to poultry. Yeah, a small amount of poultry, ideally organically raised without all the antibiotics and um, the kind of, you know, so like all these cheap versions of, of meat products that you can buy, you, you know, they're produced with um, 
in a in a way that's unhealthy for you and and bad for the environment as you can almost say so what about red meat? Because red meat, obviously, the, the World Health Organization has, has published extensively on red meat, uh, on colorectal cancer incidents and, and other problems. But it seems to me, from my purely amateur point of view, of course, that there's a big distinction between an organic grass-fed beef steak, for instance, and uh, you know a, a tin of hot dogs you can buy off the, the shelf. What, should, what, what is your understanding and your research around red meat in terms of people's yeah, optimal I mean, diet? I, I personally haven't done any research on that area, but I've been following the literature and, and obviously there is a culture war going on. You know, it's, uh, um, and then now we have this plant-based meats, uh, the, you know, meat substitutes, which is a whole other story. Um, yes, there is evidence that, that Grass-fed beef uh, has a higher amount of a uh, higher ratio of omega-3 to omega-6, so the beneficial um, fatty acids that are good for your brain. Um, I think the there's some studies that show that uh, you know excessive meat consumption increases the risk of colon cancer um, and could play a, a, a big role in this. But then if you look at countries that have some of the highest healthy beef um, consumption, you don't really see these huge variations. And uh, if you compare them to the U.S., um, it's always difficult. You know, like there's, there's, there's really small studies. If you look at the big picture, you don't get such a clear answer. For me personally, I've totally weaned myself off red meat for a couple of reasons. One is there's this possibility that it, it may have a negative effect on your overall health. The second one for me, probably equally important, is the environmental impact of um, this beef production, you know, which is the major cause of deforestation. Um, not just to make land for these cattle to graze, but also for now the mass production of corn and soybeans shipped to China for feeding producing red meat um, so that impact is enormous um, and and the third thing for ethical reasons I, I just personally you know don't like the whole thing around what happens to these animals before you get that that you know that a piece of meat on your on, uh, on your plate so I would say if you reduce the amount of red meat and stick primarily with grass-fed beef if you can afford this um, Rather than eating um, a cheap piece of beef and focusing on once a week having a grass-fed, more expensive piece of meat, it's probably the, the best thing you can do if you don't want to do away with 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 red meat. Um, it sounds very much like a, a, a method of, of eating like our grandparents did, very much based around food food that, that comes from the land. Um, if you're eating whole foods and, and organic or, or you know free-rangely reared Meat, meat and fish products, then obviously you're going to be putting yourself in a, in a better position. What about alcohol? What do we know in terms of alcohol consumption? Alcohol, you know, there's also two views on this. Obviously, there's this whole, uh, you know, likable story about the red wine and, you know, having a great time in Italy and Spain and, <laughs> and stu <coughs> studies on, on the health benefit of these polyphenols that are contained in red wine. Um, Recent studies have looked at this, and I'm, I'm sure they will, you know, with many scientific studies, uh, new studies will come out that sort of refute this, but the, the evidence is that the alcohol 
itself, if it's consumed in 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 significant amounts, I think the amount was um, more than a glass of wine per day. The negative effects of alcohol outweigh any positive effects that are based on these polyphenols um, that are contained in particularly red wine. Um, I mean, in some ways that makes sense. I think many of the health benefits of in these Mediterranean countries that have been reported with red wine have to do with the the the, the ability of wine to facilitate social interactions. You know, there's there's very few social interactions in Italy or um, Sardinia or southern France that do not involve, uh, you know, a, a class or two of red wine. So it it may well be. And, and and again, my my personal view of this of uh, you know synthesizing all the information, a the regular consumption of a small amount of red wine could be as little as half a glass in the evening, which relaxes you and facilitate, and you do it with friends, not in front of the TV, um, is probably health promoting. So that's what I would say. My recommendation to um, to to my patients. Make sure you uh, consume a, a diet that has naturally fermented foods in it, ranging from, you know, sauerkraut, if you like kimchi, uh, kombucha, um, um, kefir, uh, you know, yogurt. So there's there's many options, and and with a, a large variety of organisms, if you pick four of these that I mentioned and in, embed them in your regular diet, you put doing the best thing and and it's more likely that you stick with this if you like this food than you know buying probiotics all the time and um, so um, I think there's also a development of so-called second generation probiotics uh, this would be the ones you know that I told you earlier that would um, metabolize lactic acid into uh, short-chain fatty acids we will see more of these. We'll also see genetically engineered microbes that, for example, have a greater anti-inflammatory potential that can be given to patients with inflammatory bowel disease, for example. You know that. So there's a lot of things down the pipeline where um, I, I think probiotics will, particularly these second-generation probiotics, will um, become a significant part of our therapies. In the meantime... You know, I would recommend these naturally fermented foods on a, on a regular basis. Looking into the future, we've spoken about a number of, of lifestyle interventions someone can begin now in terms of diet, exercise, sleep, stress, community, all of those things that somebody has control over. What about looking to the future, Professor Mai? What are you seeing coming down the, the pipeline in terms of, you know, secondary prebiotics or probiotics and also other things in terms of personalized medicine or fecal transplants? What else is coming down the pipeline that is going to almost take the ability of someone to improve their gut health to a level previously unimaginable? I, I, I think there's a lot of things that um, have the potential to have major impacts on on our therapies, uh, on our uh, early diagnosis of, you know, that you would actually do a test on a patient um, in their teens and, um, you know, identify a constellation of microbes and 
more the metabolites, not the individual microbes of what, what they produce, and then make a <clears throat> AI-generated prediction how likely it is that this individual, together with a genetic background, you know, has a high risk of developing Parkinson's disease when they're 50 or 60, or Alzheimer's, or, you know, on also on a pregnant mother, if what the chances are that the child will develop autism spectrum, and then do very targeted interventions. And these targeted interventions could be, uh, you know, the second generation, uh, you know, probiotics could be, it's probably not going to be fecal microbial transplant. I think it's going to be much more, uh, doesn't involve stool transplant. It, it involves transplantation of consortia of microbes that we know from fecal transplantation studies have a benefit and take these, these microbes. You don't have to do the, the, this, this procedure of doing a fecal transplant. You can just take those, those microbes as a cocktail. Um, and that might have the same effect. I think what will happen is um, we'll probably find ways to overcome what's called the colonization resistance. So we can do very little right now with the microbiome, even if it's a bad one, because it's so stable and um, resistant to any changes. Any newcomer will be not allowed to, to settle in it. So a lot of people are working on that as well. Um, there's another idea which is more in the long term. So we have lost a lot of the diversity of our microbiome if we compare ourselves to, you know, remnants of hunter-gatherer societies in in South America and in Africa, and so these, just like any other ecosystem, where certain species disappear at some point. Um, People are working on ways that we bring those back. So they have developed um, bolts of collected microbes, you know, and preserve them for a time when when we have lost those. Um, and then again, this would require so babies already born in our society with a with a microbiome that's it it's, has a diminished diversity. And, and and richness. This gets worse from generation to generation. You Because, you know, the baby's first inoculation of microbes comes from the mother. So if the mother has decreased diversity, this will be handed over to the child. And in mice, it's been shown over a few generations, it gets worse and worse. So to interfere with that, you know, people are talking about, could we do a the equivalent of a fecal transplant or the administration of a cocktail of beneficial microbes, ancient microbes, to a newborn. You know, what you don't have this colonization resistance yet that develops later. So you could actually, from early on, change the development of this microbiome in a healthy direction that's more consistent with our ancestors. So how far away are we from this? Uh, I wanted to give my, my little boy the, the optimum microbiome uh, based on his genetics and his risk factors to, so we could make those interventions or say I wanted to lose some weight and become a better marathon runner. Well, how far away are we from some of these interventions and, and some of these breakthroughs? Some of them are pretty closer than others. I mean, I, I would say um, 
you know, some of these second-generation probiotics for increasing your endurance are already in clinical trials. So we'll see if that comes out positive or positive in a subset of people that could be around the corner. Um, inoculating your newborn with a different, you know, cocktail of microbes from ancient, from an ancient time, a lot of ethical and concerns, you know, because we don't know, and we don't know what the outcome is. It, it could, it could be detrimental, you know, uh, children could die from this kind of intervention. So th this will be, but it's being discussed by some of the most prominent people in the field. You know, it's not such as um, the, the the development of genetically engineered microbes is also not that far away as works in, in, in animals really well. Clinical trials will be underway in the not too distant future. Um, this could also be a huge, I mean, if, if, if you imagine that... Um, you know that you could take a a a probiotic with a mechanism that it overcomes the colonization resistance, and that that microbe would produce every time there's an increase in 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 gut immune activation inflammation, it would it would produce these these anti-inflammatory uh, short-chain fatty acids. So it would be a phenomenal breakthrough, you know, for many of our chronic diseases. I would say for these for these kind of things, I would say ten years. I would predict with all the ethical concerns and the clinical trials that are, you know. But it feels as though these kind of breakthroughs that you've just mentioned are seismic for the entire world. Because if you can suddenly go from a position where a lot of people are anxious or have IBS, all these other conditions that are linked with a, a suboptimal gut, if we can eradicate them by specific personalized you know, interventions when it comes to improving the health of the microbiome, we're looking at a completely different world, aren't we? Where, you know, the whole kind of happy gut, happy, happy head. If everyone's walking around looking, feeling better, this is, this is going to change humanity. Uh, am I, am I going too far or do you, do you agree? Yeah. I would say as long as we go down the path of our unhealthy lifestyles. So if we change it at the same time, you know, so let's say there's public health measures and then which really have to come from the top because a lot of people are not willing to change and it's been politicized, you know, uh, you don't need to tell me what I should eat, you know, in the U.S. was a big thing. <coughs> um, if, it, if, 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 if these microbial-based um, interventions are combined with these lifestyle changes, I think, yes, it's, it's really... Uh, you know, un unprecedented opportunities. I mean, we have, in the past, you know, we have developed our most effective life-saving medications based on targeting microbes, like the antibiotics, you know, are the, the most successful treatment ever. It could well be that there's going to be sort of the 22nd, 23rd century you know, antibiotic equivalent that we have really have these major impacts on. Um, so I would say, but obviously, is that your major, is that your major concern though? Because we've we've seen it recently with the with the rise of the new wave of obesity drugs, where people are now being given the option to have to have an, have injections where they're not having to address their 
lifestyle decisions. Is that your main concern with the kind of breakthrough we're talking about, that people would simply pop a pill or however you want to take it without giving a second consideration for their diet, to sleep, to stress, to exercise, and the pill is kind of the solution without any other redress? Yeah, I have a, I have a big concern about this. You know, I, I think this is something that um, um, would be a terrible way to go into the future. Um, obviously, the pharmaceutical industry will love it, you know, that they're, they're the main beneficiary. The medical system, will, the medical industrial complex will love it because it, you know, puts, you're becoming more and more dependent on the pharmaceutical and the medical industry um, if, if you go down this path, which I don't think is necessary because if you take your responsibility yourself, you don't need that, you know. You neither need a big pharma nor, you know, the medical industrial complex. So you, you, you can take it in your own hands. We've spoken about an, a, a number of lifestyle interventions that someone can deploy about how your gut can improve your brain in terms of minimizing anxiety and other things. What about the other way around, Professor Ma? What can the brain do for the gut? I'm thinking in terms of mind-body techniques around meditation. What does the research tell us about how we can kind of channel our mental energy into improving our gut health? There's actually a lot of evidence on that, you know. So the earliest studies about brain-gut interactions came from those um, interventions like stress, mainly stress, mainly the negative effects of how powerful stress is in changing microbial composition and diversity and um, the metabolites that they produce. And there's a few studies, not that many, a few that have shown that, you know, like a recent one in Tibetan monks, but also in people that do mindfulness-based stress reduction, that this has a, a beneficial effect on microbial diversity and, uh, you know, composition. I, I think we're lacking the studies because typically funding agencies don't fund, I mean, they fund studies on, 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 on disease and negative things like stress and how, how it changes the microbiome in a negative direction but much less investment in studying, you know, what are the positive effects of her. But we know, for example, from our own study on one technique, cognitive behavioral therapy, which basically changes the output of your brain and autonomic nervous system to the gut, and that does change the microbiome in a, in a positive way. And So what, what is the mechanism by which that change is occurring then? It's the, the strong connections our gut has with the brain, mainly through the autonomic nervous system, so the, the sympathetic nervous system and, and, and the vagus, part of the, 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 the vagal nerve fibers. Um, there's some role also in terms of cortisol, like the other part of the stress system, but it's much better understood in terms of these, these, these nerve pathways that go from the brain to, to the gut. And that can change the environment of, of the gut to encourage the proliferation of beneficial microbiome then, for instance. I'm, obviously, I'm a layman in this. I'm just trying to get my head around the mechanism by which kind of thinking and, and meditation can, can make it a more conducive environment for positive bacteria. Yeah, that can fundamentally change the, the habitat um, of the microbes. And also, we know that the neurotransmitters that are used by these pathways from the brain can also affect directly some microbes, you know, like norepinephrine can affect directly the, um, the gene expression and the behavior 
of, of certain microbes, which then change the way they interact with our gut. So there's, there's, there's actually quite a bit of, um, you know, also human data, probably more human data than we have for the other, for the bottom-up signaling um, than, you know, um, yeah, I would I would say it's it's a very important part this this mind component and the techniques that we have now that are becoming popular. You know, like the mindfulness based stress reduction, hypnosis, cognitive behavioral therapy. Some of these therapies becoming available as online uh, therapies, so you don't have to go through the expensive through, uh, through the expense of uh, seeing a therapist for 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 several months. Uh, so. Th- yeah, when I talked about the holistic therapy, it's definitely targeted at the brain, at the gut, um, at the same time. Thank you for listening to the Unfiltered Podcast. If you've got this far, I hope you won't mind if I ask you to leave a five-star review when you get the chance. We'd really appreciate it. And don't forget you can access all of our exclusive Unfiltered video interviews and features at unfilteredonline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. See you next time.